Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 82, The Space Shuttle, Part 8. Let's start reading it loud and clear. Clear, clear, clear. The clock has started. The clock has started. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Last week, we talked about the causes of the Challenger disaster, a faulty O-ring, and some borderline criminally negligent judgment calls. We also talked about the presidentially appointed Rogers Commission that looked into the disaster. When the commission released its report to the public, it included various recommendations on how to make future space shuttle missions safer, just as the commission that looked into the Apollo 1 fire had. This final report included nine recommendations to improve safety with the shuttle program, and President Reagan directed NASA to report how they would implement those recommendations, including milestones to show progress, within 30 days of the report's release. The Rogers Commission report can be found in its entirety online if you are interested in reading it. I am not going to go in-depth into the recommendations here, but I am going to talk about some of the changes made at NASA in response to these recommendations. Because of the report, NASA initiated a total redesign of the Space Shuttle's solid rocket boosters, which was watched over by an independent oversight group. NASA's contract with Morton Thiekel included a clause stating that in the event of a failure leading to loss of life or mission, Thiekel would forfeit $10 million of its incentive fee and formally accept legal liability for the failure. After the Challenger disaster, Thiekel agreed to voluntarily accept the monetary penalty in exchange for not being forced to accept liability. NASA also created a new Office of Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance and stood up a shuttle safety panel that included former astronauts. Apollo Program Program Manager General Sam Phillips was also given broad authority to review the space shuttle management structure. The unrealistically optimistic launch schedule pursued by NASA was a particular target of the Rogers Commission. After the disaster, NASA attempted to aim at a more realistic shuttle flight rate that would not tax the agency's maintenance and logistics capabilities beyond what they could handle. NASA also worked with the Department of Defense to put more satellites into orbit using expendable launch vehicles, in other words, rockets, rather than the shuttle. Additionally, In August 1986, President Reagan announced that the shuttle would no longer carry commercial satellite payloads. These changes and redesigns took place from January 1986 to September 1988, and after a 32-month hiatus, NASA was ready for its next mission. During that time, the agency ditched its complicated new numbering system, so the mission that followed STS-51 Lima was simply STS-26, the 26th launch of the shuttle era. 
Dubbed the Return to Space mission, it was the seventh mission for Space Shuttle Discovery. It was the first mission since STS-4, the final shuttle test flight, to have all of the crew members wear pressure suits for both liftoff and landing, and was the first U.S. space mission to have an all-veteran crew since Apollo 11. This flight landed safely four days later, but did suffer severe damage to the thermal protection tiles under the shuttle's wings. Post-flight analysis showed that the damage was caused by a 12-inch or 30-centimeter long piece of cork insulation impacting the area during the launch. The debris came from the forward joint on the right-hand solid rocket booster. The damage was so severe that during re-entry, the thermal protection tile almost completely eroded. A similar chain of events would lead to the loss of Space Shuttle Columbia nearly 15 years later. There were 86 successful shuttle missions between January 1988 and February 2003, but sadly there was one more disaster before the shuttle program came to an end. The Columbia lifted off from Cape Canaveral on January 16, 2003, and climbed through the usual turbulence that accompanied a launch. At T plus 1 minute 22 seconds, the mission's commander was given the order to go at throttle up just as Dick Scobie had been right before the Challenger disaster. And while Columbia wasn't destroyed at this exact time, a pillow-sized chunk of insulation flaked off the external tank and struck the orbiter's left wing, knocking off several tiles needed to protect the shuttle during re-entry. Foam shedding, as NASA referred to it, had been happening to shuttles for years, since even before the STS-26 incident I just referenced. NASA considered it a minor risk, but it was this event, 82 seconds into the mission, that would ultimately lead to Columbia's demise. The shuttle spent the next 16 days in orbit before heading home. The crew was about 50 miles or 80 kilometers up when the sky began to turn from black to blue and the first alarms went off but soon the shuttle was spinning so violently that no human could have survived for more than 30 or 40 seconds. The crew cabin depressurized so quickly that there wasn't time for the astronauts to shut the visors on their helmets. Columbia broke into pieces and disintegrated like a daytime shooting star over Texas at 7.53 a.m. on February 1, 2003. President George W. Bush my fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At 9 o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. A short time later, debris was seen falling from the skies above Texas. The Columbia is lost. There are no survivors. On board was a crew of seven, Colonel Rick Husband, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Anderson, Commander Laurel Clark, Captain David Brown, Commander William McCool, Dr. Kulpna Shavla, and Ilan Ramon, a colonel in the Israeli Air Force. These men and women assumed great risk in the service to all humanity. In an age when space flight has come to seem almost routine, 
it is easy to overlook the dangers of travel by rocket and the difficulties of navigating the fierce outer atmosphere of the Earth. These astronauts knew the dangers, and they faced them willingly, knowing they had a high and noble purpose in life. Because of their courage and daring and idealism, we will miss them all the more. All Americans today are thinking as well of the families of these men and women who have been given this sudden shock and grief. You're not alone. Our entire nation grieves with you. And those you loved will always have the respect and gratitude of this country. The cause in which they died will continue. Mankind is led into the darkness beyond our world by the inspiration of discovery and the longing to understand. Our journey into space will go on. In the skies today, we saw destruction and tragedy. Yet farther than we can see, there is comfort and hope. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. The same creator who names the stars also knows the names of the seven souls we mourn today. The crew of the shuttle Columbia did not return safely to Earth. Yet we can pray that all are safely home. May God bless the grieving families, and may God, may God continue to bless America. After America's second shuttle disaster, Dick and June Scobie's daughter Kathy, by this time a mother herself, wrote an open letter to the families of the Columbia crew on behalf of the Challenger children. We want you to know that it will be bad, very bad, for a little while, but it will get better. You'll torture yourself wondering if they felt pain. She also acknowledged that something that should have caused private grief would instead lead to public torment. Continuing, she said, My father died a hundred times a day on televisions all across the country, and since it happened so publicly, everyone felt like it happened to them. And it did. Everyone saw it, everyone hurt, and everyone grieved. Everyone wanted to help, but that didn't make it any easier for me. They wanted to say goodbye to American heroes. I just wanted to say goodbye to my daddy. She urged Columbia families to remember the way they lived, not the way they died. Like Challenger, Columbia also had a crew of seven during its fateful mission. The mission's commander, Air Force Colonel Rick Douglas Husband, a native of Amarillo, Texas, was laid to rest at Lano Cemetery in Amarillo. He was 45 years old. The mission's pilot, Navy Commander William Cameron McCool, a native of San Diego, California, is buried at Grandview Cemetery in Anacortes, Washington, where his family was living at the time of the disaster. He was 41 years old.
There were four mission specialists on this flight. Navy Captain David McDowell Brown, a native of Arlington, Virginia, is buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Section 46, Grave 1180-3. He was 46 years old. Indian-born payload specialist Kalpana Chala, a U.S. citizen at the time of her death, was the first astronaut of Indian origin to fly in space. A native of Karnal, East Punjab State, her ashes were scattered at Zion National Park in Utah. She was 41 years old. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Michael Philip Anderson, a native of Plattsburgh, New York, is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. In Section 46, Grave 1180-1, he was 43 years old. Navy Captain Laurel Blair Clark, a native of Ames, Iowa, is also buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Section 46, Grave 1180-2. The final member of the crew was payload specialist Israeli Air Force Colonel Elan Ramon, a native of Ramat Gan, Israel, and a member of the Israeli Space Agency. He is buried in Nahalal in northern Israel. He was 48 years old. All of these men and women left behind family members. With the exception of David Brown, all were married and had children. In the fall of 2003, the seven names of the Columbia astronauts joined those of the Apollo 1 and Challenger crews on the Memorial Space Mirror at the Kennedy Space Center. After the Columbia disaster, a huge recovery effort descended on East Texas, not unlike the water recovery effort after Challenger. Search crews recovered more than 80,000 pieces of the shuttle, each one cataloged and laid out in a gymnasium-sized room in the Vehicle Assembly Building in Florida. NASA's official inquest recommended 29 reforms to make future spaceflights safer. After the inquest, the question of what to do with the wreckage remained. After the Challenger inquest, the debris was buried 90 feet underground in two abandoned missile silos. The nearly 125 tons of debris were then sealed under a pair of 5-ton concrete caps. NASA decided to go a different route with Columbia. Rather than bury the debris, NASA let Michael Cianilli a NASA employee who spent a significant amount of time in Texas helping with the recovery effort, walked co-workers through what he called the Columbia Room. Cianilli is an engineer, not a historian or a tour guide, but says, What had happened was personal, not just to me, but to the others who worked there. Losing Columbia was a gut punch. Researching the accident led him into agency archives where he found troubling similarities between the Challenger and Columbia missions, schedule pressures, warning signs. He talked his way into a new project, creating a tribute to the victims of NASA's worst disasters. It wasn't the most wanted job at the Cape, he recalls. It was like showing our dirty laundry. To prepare, he read up on disasters the Titanic, the Hindenburg. He visited the Holocaust Museum and the 9-11 Memorial in New York City, asking curators how they chose their exhibits. He describes his research as humbling. 
On returning to the Kennedy Space Center, he hunted down artifacts for a memorial exhibit at the Visitor Center, where more than 1.5 million tourists per year come to view rockets, moonscapes, and the space shuttle Atlantis. Challenger and Columbia families donated dozens of keepsakes he considered priceless. A TFNG t-shirt, model airplanes built by future astronauts, a Star Trek lunchbox, a Bible. Still, he wanted more. Cianilli wanted to display a large piece of each downed shuttle to suggest the craft's size and the violence it took to destroy them. He wanted to honor the forces every shuttle crew was up against. He had the empty frames of Columbia's flight deck windows, but Challenger's wreckage was entombed at the bottom of those missile silos. He found photos of several sections of Challenger's fuselage. One section had been bent and burned, but still showed the American flag, an image that put him in mind of the banner that Francis Scott Key saw over Fort McHenry during the War of 1812, waving through rockets' red glare. Thanks to the agency's detailed records, he knew which Minuteman silo that piece was in, and he convinced his bosses to let him try to retrieve it. Early in 2015, NASA cranes removed the concrete slab plugging one of the silos, and Cianilli repelled into the darkness, armed only with a flashlight. He refused to describe the smell so as not to offend surviving family members, but did admit that it was rather dank. He said he saw storage containers and rusted, twisted chunks of metal, but no sign of the port side section of the orbiter with the flag. He continued descending into the silo for more than a week with no luck, and he kept pressing for more time. After nearly two weeks, his efforts paid off. With the help of a crane, he brought up the 15-foot section painted with a burned and scratched but unmistakable star-spangled banner. When the dripping chunk of debris was finally laying on the fuselage beside the open silo, he went over and kissed it. I haven't used this sound effect in a while, and I know this is kind of a serious part of the story, but I think that that deserves a gross, as well as a hearty huzzah for his efforts. Today, that charred section of Challenger is the centerpiece of Forever Remembered, the Kennedy Space Center's memorial to the 14 astronauts who died in the line of duty on space shuttle missions. Krista McAuliffe's Teacher in Space mission patch is on display along with Ron McNair's Black Belt, L. Onizuka's Buddhist prayer beads, a copy of Judy Resnick's journal article on frog retinas. You'll have to trust me that that article was directly related to her PhD in electrical engineering, as well as artifacts from the Columbia crew. Cianilli still works for NASA and still stops by the memorial to pay his respects when he can. One day, I heard a little girl ask her mom, who were they? And the mom said, they were heroes. That's all I could hope for. Cianilli hopes his efforts to delve into the worst disasters in NASA's history will really capture the lessons learned from those mistakes. NASA, being NASA, gave this effort a cumbersome name. The Apollo Challenger Columbia Lessons Learned Program or ACCLLP for short. I've been around the U.S. government for almost 20 years now, and even I'm not sure how that acronym is pronounced. 
Aglip, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Regardless, with new missions to the moon and Mars planned for the 2020s and beyond, this program and Cianelli's talks about the program have gained urgency. Recognizing that NASA isn't the only game in town anymore and that the future of space is both public and private, he has presented these lessons learned to crowds at Elon Musk's SpaceX, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, and other companies, urging them to learn from the agency's worst moments. A key part of his message is, the problem with Challenger wasn't the machine. The machine was trying to talk to us, but we didn't listen. In April 2003, Congress approved and President George W. Bush signed into law the Columbia Memorial Act, authorizing the Secretary of the Army, in consultation with NASA, to place a memorial to the Columbia crew at Arlington National Cemetery. On February 2, 2004, more than 400 surviving family members and NASA employees came to Arlington for the memorial's dedication in Section 46, right beside the Challenger Memorial. That marker features a silhouette of the space shuttle, imprinted with the names of the fallen crew surrounded by seven stars. The shuttle program came to an end on July 21, 2011, following the 12-day STS-135 mission by Space Shuttle Atlantis. Only four astronauts were part of that crew, the smallest since STS-6 back in 1983. When it was first envisioned, NASA expected the shuttle to fly 500 missions. For various reasons, many of which we have covered over the last several episodes, only 135 missions actually launched, and only 133 landed safely. But during that time, 836 astronauts and crew flew at least one mission, spending a total of 1,289 days, 36 minutes, and 29 seconds in orbit. After the Challenger disaster, teacher in space runner-up Barbara Morgan returned to Idaho and resumed her teaching career. She also continued to work with NASA's Education Division. In January 1998, 12 years after the first shuttle disaster, Morgan was selected by NASA as a mission specialist as part of NASA's 17th astronaut group. Morgan finally made it to space on STS-118 a mission that launched on August 8, 2007 to deliver supplies and material to the International Space Station and to finally put a teacher in space. Sure, this time the teacher was also a fully certified astronaut, but NASA did not miss out on the opportunity to have Morgan interact with students while in orbit. She left NASA shortly after her spaceflight to return to teaching full-time. In August 2008, she accepted a dual position at my alma mater, Boise State University, as a Distinguished Educator in Residence 
in both the engineering and education colleges of Boise State. That same month, the Barbara R. Morgan Elementary School opened in McCall, Idaho, the mountain town she taught in before and after her time as the teacher in space runner-up. Krista McAuliffe was the first teacher NASA selected for a spaceflight, but she certainly wasn't the last. I just mentioned Barbara Morgan, and others would follow her. In 2018, two NASA astronauts who had been middle and high school teachers before joining the space agency honored McAuliffe's legacy by performing the lessons in space that she never got to while aboard the International Space Station. Known as Krista's Lost Lessons, Joe Acaba and Ricky Arnold did the experiments McAuliffe had spent so much time rehearsing from the ISS. Built by shuttle astronauts and cosmonauts beginning in 1998, the International Space Station was the shuttle program's crowning achievement and could not have been completed otherwise. These two astronauts honored a woman they had never met, but who had inspired them both to pursue careers in education and then careers with NASA. They rounded up Alka-Seltzer tablets, rubber balls, and other zero-G props to bring Krista's mission full circle by teaching four lessons on effervescence, chromatography, liquids and microgravity, and Newton's laws. I will place a link to the Challenger Center's website with videos of all four lessons. Earlier this year, Joe Acaba took over as the chief of the astronaut office. It has often been said that the shuttle program was canceled without plans for a clear replacement, but the truth is a bit more complex than that. Less than a year after Columbia's tragic loss, President George W. Bush released a document called Vision for Space Exploration, a plan that set NASA on a path to not only retire the aging shuttle fleet, but to replace it with a new generation of spacecraft thus retaining America's launch capabilities and global lead in space exploration. In this plan, the shuttle would continue until the primary construction on the International Space Station was complete. Simultaneously, NASA was to develop the Crew Exploration Vehicle, a more traditional capsule that would be used to carry astronauts to the space station, the moon, and potentially to Mars. Test flights of this relatively simple vehicle were to begin by 2008, allowing sufficient time to get the capsule system up and running by the time the shuttle was retired. A key goal of this plan was to separate the crew from the cargo. The shuttle had been an attempt to combine a crew transport vehicle with a heavy lift booster, and the result was something that never truly excelled at either task. It was too large and complex to simply ferry personnel to the ISS, while its unique design and operational parameters limited the type of payloads it could carry. Put simply, the White House felt the shuttle program was a failed experiment that had not only cost the lives of 14 astronauts, but also ate up too much of NASA's budget and resources. The vision for space exploration aimed to put NASA back on a safer and more sustainable path with the eventual goal of returning to the moon by 2020. Spoilers, we didn't make it. 
In 2005, NASA created the Constellation program, which consisted of two separate rocket boosters, one for passenger flight and one for cargo. The cargo booster had eight times the cargo capacity of the shuttle. The program also called for the development of an Apollo-era-inspired capsule and lunar lander. Unfortunately, the Constellation program was plagued with delays and cost overruns by the time the Bush administration gave way to the Obama administration. Reviews ordered by President Obama assessed that completing the Constellation program would cost at least $150 billion, and even then, a return to the moon or a mission to Mars in the foreseeable future was unlikely. Based on these findings and what the president called a lack of motivation, Constellation was officially canceled in 2010, a year before the final shuttle flight. It was at this time that the new president made a hard push for involving commercial operators in NASA's operations. Which leads us to the present, where there are various public companies in the space game some sending equipment to the ISS, and some taking tourists into space. I had thought about talking about some of those ventures and NASA's plans for the future, especially after the test launch of the new Artemis rocket earlier this year and its successful lunar orbits. I had also thought about returning to space stations and talking about the Mir and the ISS. I had the chance to see the mirror pass over me at night twice before it re-entered Earth's atmosphere, once from my front porch in late 1998 or 1999 when the news announced that it would be visible at a certain time with the naked eye over Boise, and once while I was walking down a dark street in Ecuador in 2000 or 2001. That encounter was completely by chance, but since I had seen it before, a larger, brighter light trailing a smaller light a little ways behind it, I knew immediately what it was. It wasn't until just now, well, not right now as in when I am recording this, but right now as in while I am writing this episode, that I've done everything I started out to do with space in this podcast. Ghosts of Arlington is a history podcast. For now, Arlington's role in space is over. Everything that has come and will come after the shuttle program is relatively present day or will be sometime in the future. I truly hope that I never have to return to the topic of space, because I fear that if I do, it will be because of another memorial to the fallen at Arlington. I say never, but I will need one more episode so that I can focus on one more extraordinary space pioneer who was a member of NASA's initial class of astronauts. Over the last several dozen episodes, all of his peers have been laid to rest, some due to accident, some due to time. Next week, we will officially say goodbye to the space race by saying goodbye to the final member of the Mercury 7, John Glenn. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death. 
for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.